0: You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace.
1: Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospe. Hello, welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon, here with Christoph Jospe and Paul Gamble. We are in Ballard, Seattle, the Nori HQ area. Which is great because we are here for Reversa Palooza, which is happening this week. And how long have we been preparing for this, Christoph? I feel like it's been forever. Well, I'm always here. You're you're here for Reversa Palooza. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> we we've got to pull preparing. rank on me <laughs> to put me in my place. We we've been
2: preparing for quite some time. It is a culmination of a lot of things that we're doing, and really just a starting point as well. It's exciting because sitting across from us, we have Stacey Smedley, who is head of sustainability at Skanska, or if you're in Seattle, Skanska. And Stacy is incredibly gracious with her time, not only to come up on this podcast, but she's going to be attending Reversa Palooza. So we get many doses of each other. But how about we start with who are you? What's your story? Why Gosh. are you on the reversing climate
1: change podcast? Is this something you even care about?
0: How far back do you want me to go? Do
1: the, the Carl Sagan, the, to conceive of the universe, you have, or what is it, to bake an apple pie, you must first you create go. the universe? Yes. There you go. Yeah. Oh, it
0: started when I was eight, for real. So I can start there if you start want there. me to. Yeah, okay. please. So I grew up in Oregon, Clackamas, Oregon, which is a suburb of Portland. My grandpa had about, oh, I don't know, three or four acres there. So we built a house. My mom and I lived on the bottom floor, and he was upstairs with my grandma. And it was just this kind of natural outdoor space that I had as my playground every day. And when I was eight, he sold it. All the land kept the house to a developer. So I watched from the deck. It was on this big hill as the bulldozers came in and basically clear-cut my forest. And the stream went away and the deer went away. Everything went away and became kind of asphalt and dirt lots and then really crappy cookie-cutter houses that went up. So I told my mom when I was eight that I wanted to grow up and build things that didn't destroy nature because I saw that man could make really bad choices about that. And then beyond that, at the same time I was doing a uh, report on Julia Morgan, who was the first female architect in California to be licensed. Mm. So it was this confluence of things where in my eight-year-old brain, oh my gosh, I can be a female architect and follow in Julia Morgan's footsteps and, and change the world and build things that are good for the environment. So that's really where it started. And I did all the things I needed to do to become an architect. went to University of Washington, got my architecture degree, did architecture for 10 years, and then designed a project, a living building project, which is a very stringent certification system for buildings. It's the fourth in the world, and Skanska was the contractor. And I saw all of a sudden that the contractor actually touches way more stuff than the architect does in terms of of what you control and what you're procuring in terms of materials and how you build things. So I asked to join them, and they let me come on board at Skanska. And then I kind of worked my way into the sustainability role full-time.
1: Wow. So are you investigating their supply chain and making sure you can uh, appease your eight-year-old self?
0: Oh, yeah. She's constantly in there in my brain. Like, are you doing enough? Are you really doing what you said you were going to? It's a commitment.
1: Yeah. You're not disappointing her, are not, you?
0: No, not right now. Thank goodness. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's really
2: exciting to also, you're a mother and you have an eight-year-old now. So maybe it's like seven. Seven. But seven.
0: yeah, he acts like he's 13. So...
2: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I- And it's really important, I think, to think about the children here because the planet that we live in today, it's like we have this choice. We can do the right thing or we can do something that will continue us on a path that's completely unsustainable. And one of the exciting points that we've learned about Skanska is you're, as a company, really trying to walk the talk. And you look at the construction industry as an architect and you say, okay, well, we can do a lot more and we have to do a lot more and we can set these far-reaching targets that relate to sustainability. Can you talk to us about what some of those targets are? And like sure. 2030 and 2050? Yeah.
0: yeah, so Skanska is I think really special. I mean, I love it. I work there. I've been there for five years. But you know, it's a Swedish-based company and we call that the mothership or mother Skanska, Mother Skanska, if you want to say it appropriately. <laughs> and there's this perspective I think that we get coming from Europe that's a little more progressive in the first place. We've got thirty-six offices nationally in the U.S. But the Swedish perspective of really pushing things, and they've done more over there than we have here in some instances. So, you know, a lot of our mandates come from that European mothership. And, you know, when the climate agreement happened in Paris, Skanska said, we're going to sign on as a business. We understand that, you know, emissions are one of the biggest factors in climate change. Building emissions are 40% of that. Construction plays a huge part. So they committed to zero emissions by 2050. And then when the U.S. government pulled out of it. They said, okay, we're doubling down. This is a true commitment. We're actually going to start tracking and, and benchmarking and, and leveraging it more than just signing something. So it was kind of like, yes, this is a good idea um, a few years ago, and now it's imperative because if businesses doesn't lead that, then we're not going to get there. So there's a, a strong commitment by Skanska to really understand as a construction company what it means to get to zero carbon emissions by 2050. And I don't know of any other construction companies that are are committing to that so holistically. There's different parts of construction, so I can get into that too in terms of how we track and what we track. You know, a lot of the times building emissions are thought about from the operational side of things. So we think about the energy that we're consuming once the building's you know, put in the ground and operational. But as energy gets cleaner, especially in places like Washington state where I'm based and buildings get more efficient based on code, that embodied carbon of all the stuff you're putting in the ground in the first place becomes a huger chunk, much, much bigger chunk of the pie. You know, that's the stuff that a contractor touches and quantifies and can impact.
1: And how important is it to you to do things within your own supply chain and make sure that they are not emitting versus buying offsets or doing something else that is not directly related to the products that you're using?
0: Well, it's a much more direct impact to reduce first. So it's reduce first and offset second. In the construction industry, there's things that are always going to be utilized where it's never going to be zero carbon. There's really progressive goals of removing concrete and steel and going to wood. And we think that's a great approach, but concrete and steel are never going away. And there's an emissions associated with them that's just part of their process. There's no way that's ever going to be zero. So it's a balance, I think, of really impacting what you can and reducing what you can, and then finding really responsible, transparent ways to offset what you can't. Mm. And that's where we are.
2: So I'm curious, let's get into the geeky details about emissions that are within the construction industry. And you also threw out a term that i I know it's come up in previous podcasts with Andrew Himes, but I'd like to define it again. Embodied carbon. What does that mean?
0: Yes. So embodied carbon is really the carbon associated with the manufacture, transport, and construction of a material or in a building. So anything like steel, you're talking about, you know, the manufacturing process of making that steel, the transportation cost and emissions of getting it from that manufacturing facility to the job site. And then the emissions associated with the contractor actually putting it in place.
1: And you're starting to measure that. But it, it sounds quite difficult to measure all of those things. It's complicated. It is. Yeah. And we don't even make steel in the U.S. anymore. Oh, that, that sounds like <laughs> we an extra. Do too. <laughs> 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 don't, don't we like remake it? Or what's the what's the term for what we do with it? It's,
0: I don't know. It's you're recycled
2: me. steel. Yeah, but a, but a lot of it's recycled.
0: Of
1: perhaps an ignorant question or
2: a presupposition that we don't make steel. Of course we do. But there's a good deal of steel coming from China, which yes. is sometimes recycled steel. I kind of funny anecdote from a past life was an associate director at a small nonprofit. And there was a whole bunch of junk in the basement that I needed to get rid of. And I ended up calling the junkyard and someone paid me about a 100 bucks for all the steel. And I asked him, what are you going to do with this? He's like, oh, well, I'm going to sell it to someone else who's going to put it on a ship and ship it to China, who's going to recycle the steel because it's more efficient for us to do that. And then when you really get into the emissions of all of that, it's kind of crazy because putting steel on a ship and sending it to China just to get that steel back here in the United States and someone's got to count for those emissions and maybe they don't always get counted. And that gets us into these kind of hairy ideas around your scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, and all of these various facets that we can and can't control. And obviously we want to reduce those emissions as much as possible. So take us through it a little bit. What are kind of the biggest sources of emissions in the construction industry as it relates to what we can actually do to affect those emissions reductions?
0: Sure. Yeah. So just in terms of materials, if you're looking at a building, the core and shell of a building, which is really kind of the structural components are what make up about 80% of a building's emissions. So if you look at concrete, steel, glazing, aluminum, and gypsum board, if you look at those five things, you're getting about 80% of the pie. So that's really where we're focused right now. And then if you dig down into each of those, you know, steel, it's the the process of making the steel so what's emitted at the factory. It's the transportation of all the components and where you're getting the content of the steel from. In concrete, it's the cement that's got the biggest component of emissions, where that cement's coming from, how it's made, how much cement you put in your concrete, you have control over that when you're making a concrete mix. And then, you know, gypsum and glazing and stuff, it's just the process of making those things. There's ways to, you know, if you're looking at steel, for instance, this is going to get kind of nerdy, I think. Hopefully people won't turn the podcast off if I start to go down this path. So for steel, like specifically, if you're looking at steel and you've got a plant in Washington, which we have, whose emissions factors are controlled by Washington state legislation. So they're already the cleanest steel plant in the country. And then you're looking at steel from China. You have a choice as a procurer of that steel to pick the Washington state supplier versus the Chinese supplier. And there may be a cost associated with that in terms of how much it's costing. And that's the thing you take back to the owner and they have to make a choice on really. But it's really going to that level of thought in the design process when you're selecting these things which is not how it's currently done in the design and construction industries. You're not thinking that way, necessarily.
1: Do people just think about what's the lowest cost available to them? Correct. Yeah.
0: What we're trying to do at Skanska is actually build a mission factor into the data that we're giving to owners. So when we're doing our pre-construction estimating, creating the cost model for a project and design, they get the cost, they get the schedule impacts, and they also get the emissions factors associated with those choices. So they're seeing it. And we can say, hey, if you choose this, it's twice as much as if you choose that. It's your choice. What are you going to do?
1: Was it Andrew Himes or maybe it was someone else who's talking about on the podcast about how people are willing to pay a premium oftentimes just to think of themselves in the clear? And maybe owners don't necessarily care, but oftentimes the people who are buying those units or renting those units get excited about it. Would you agree with that?
0: I would. but I think the owners care too. I mean, yeah. if you look at some of the clients and folks that are building things in Seattle or Washington and the commitments they may have on the carbon reporting on the operational side where they're committing to zero carbon and saying all these things about offsets. If they don't care about what they're emitting to build the buildings they're putting all of their employees in, they're really not zero carbon in my mind or net zero, however we want to call it to truly get to zero carbon. They're only looking at a certain component of it. So owners that care about that, once they understand The amount of emissions associated with building that building is going to take 250 years of that building operating to equal what we're building and putting in the ground. Once you give them that kind of data, if they don't have some kind of positive response to want to at least think about it, there's kind of a problem.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I moved to Seattle from New York City Uh in October. And in New York, we like to build really big buildings. Uh We have the ego for it. And it's also geographically limited, so we need to build up. But when you build really tall buildings, that creates enormous energy constraint. And it also is something where architects are saying, whoa, okay, we realize the emissions of building this really big building is going to be bad. What can we do to make it look good? And so... I want to qualify this. Anything you say is your opinion does not have (laughs) to be that of Skanska's. But to what extent are some of the things happening in the construction industry putting lipstick on a pig versus where are meaningful emissions reductions actually occurring that aren't just trying to satisfy the hubris of someone saying, I want to live on the 112th floor so I can get a view of Central Park and out to the Catskills on a clear day. Because clearly, if you're building a really tall building, there's no way that's going to look good on your emissions side. Or is it?
0: I mean, this is going to get farther than just emissions. I mean, there's trade-offs about a building in the city that's 100 stories and has that many people living in in a very urban place. And this gets into kind of on the people side, you're going down the emissions wormhole, right? That person's living in the city, so they're not driving 30 miles from a suburb where they're in a smaller place that doesn't take as much emissions to build a single-family house out in, you know, wherever they are coming from.
2: So Ma- maybe. They, maybe. They could be a Russian oligarch and are just that's flying true. to Moscow that's, on their private jet twice a month. So.
0: Yeah, that's true, too. I have to think about New York City.
2: Is it, I think it's just uh, another weird hypothetical layer <laughs> that was tacked on this question. Uh, we are we supposed to throw soft pitches. That was, <laughs> that, that was maybe unfair. But, but well, I'm, my, thinking, I'm my,
0: trying to think of lipstick on a pig when it comes to missions because, I mean, the first thing is you don't know what you don't know. So there's just this ignorance about it. You're not putting lipstick on anything. You're, just, you're not even dressing the pig up. It's just not there. And I think that's the first problem when it comes to the embodied side of things. The operational side of things, I think it's just a matter of good design and being efficient. And there's ways to get pretty close to zero emissions on that side of the table now.
1: Just through emissions and cost savings on, you know, using less energy to heat the building, et cetera.
0: Design choices. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're seeing the EUI, which is the energy use intensity of buildings going from, you know, in the hundreds down to in the forties, which is great. So we're getting there on that side. We've been thinking about it a long time. We have not been thinking about embodied carbon for very long at all. So, you know, buildings that are getting built over there, they probably have no idea what their embodied emissions are. They're not even tracking it. So it's not even a discussion point. Skanska
2: has been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of operational experience. What sort of lessons have informed what it's doing today? And particularly as it relates to reducing emissions, but really building new building is kind of of the future.
0: This is really what brought me to Skanska in the first place. There's an approach of you've got to lead. If you want to make change, you have to lead. You can't always follow. So whenever there's a new certification system or a way of building or, or something to track like embodied carbon, Skanska tries to lead and basically provide examples to the industry of how how it works and what's possible and what you know the outcomes can be. So I think that's the first thing is just Skanska taking this kind of first adopter role when it comes to these things. And then I think it's just, you know, the practice of it, right? You have to find clients that are, owners are the ones that pay the bills and pay the design fees and all those things. So you have to find owners that are like-minded that want to kind of take that leap with you and try something and become a first adopter as well. And then kind of grow those movements. We've seen that in the certification side of things, with buildings with lead or living building challenge, starting, you know, being there when it started and then now seeing where they are. So I think it's just applying that to the emission side of the table for us right now. We're creating a, an open source tool. Where we're going to allow others to basically use a tool we're creating for ourselves to put in quantities of materials and spit out emissions. So it's not a competitive advantage for us. It's something that any contractor could use or design team could use. So there's just leading and not, not feeling like it's um, us against the rest of the industry, I guess, too. That makes sense.
1: And yeah, you'd like to have them emulate you and join you. Join right. us, maybe, yeah. Maybe look up to you a little bit. Maybe That's get nice some of that credit. It's nice to be the thread. first one to do something.
0: Yeah. You know, if someone has a question, they're going to maybe come to you first. Or if they're passionate about it, they're going to want you to build their building. So there's, you know, there's a marketing side of that too. But it's really, if we have the ability to do something, why wouldn't we, we share that and just make the industry better?
1: Yeah, we love the open source ethos and love seeing that sort of sharing happen. Because yeah, you could be really proprietary and secretive about that too. And then would it really be as effective? You'd probably be doing it in isolation. Would yeah. you can still qualify as a leader? You might just be having that competitive advantage internalized.
0: Well, and if you compete on it, then there's all these sources of data that aren't the same. And it's not, the data is not as good when you've got 20 people making up their own data sets around emissions, whatever it is. I'm getting a little nerdy again because we're dealing with this right now.
1: (laughs) You could could just easily be a member of NORI the way you're talking. This is exactly (laughs) how we view data and open source uh, uh, methodologies as well. Well, also on on
2: standardization, because we can see the writing on the wall. It's going to happen. Maybe the construction industry will be regulated, but getting ahead of the regulation to say, hey, we have the foresight to do everything that we can to reduce our emissions, we realize that it's also good business. And we realize that we need a comprehensive way to think about these things. And here we go, we're putting this out into the world, like use it, don't, improve it, or not. um,
0: Add more data to it. Add more data
2: to it. It's particularly exciting because at Reversa Palooza, I'm not sure if it's exactly the same or similar, but it's kind of related to what Kate Simen group is doing at UW, where they are sort of collecting a whole number of other industries to talk about this. How are you related to that group?
0: That's funny. I love Kate. She's one of my favorite people. I'm on the advisory board for her carbon leadership forum group, and I'm also the construction chair for the Embodied Carbon Network, which is a national group that's pulled in over 200 people that are kind of thinking and passionate about this to get on task force and to actually figure out how to work together.
1: Is this like the life cycle analysis crew? Yes. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Skanska funded a, a benchmarking study that they completed two years ago to just get as many data sets as we could around LCA and try to figure out if we can normalize the data. Um, can we? Well, the data is coming from different sources. And I guess that's the issue that we're running into right now is if we want to get emissions factors for things. And there's five different entities setting those emissions factors in their silos, you know, and they're all doing it with the best intentions, I think. But, you know, one's different than the other. You know, a building uses this one versus that one, and then you try to get their results and and normalize them against each other. It's just not transparent. You don't really understand how close they are. Our benchmarking study gives you kind of a 20 to 80 percent range of embodied carbon per building type based on LCA's coming from different data sources, which is something, but it's not as good as it could be.
1: It sounds like a coordination game theoretic problem, like you should all just agree on one standard. It doesn't matter necessarily whose it is. Maybe it should be yours, but (laughs) I'm sure you would like that. It's probably better that everyone just agree on one. So it's actually you can normalize it. But I'm, I'm sure there's debates on which is more accurate. And I'm sure some people's buildings look better under some than others. And is that part of the discussion of how to solve problems like that? Is it politics?
0: It's politics. I think it's, you know, competition, too. People can't do all this stuff for free. You've got to Uh, have a way, you know, if you have good intentions, you have good intentions, but unless you're getting paid to create that data and put it somewhere, it's hard to do it, right? You can't just do it in your free time. (laughs) (laughs) So people are creating businesses around it and finding ways to make a living off of it. And that then needs them to protect the data because it's proprietary to them. And then that's what's valuable.
1: And then you've outflanked them by it being open source and trying to aggregate this together. That's, right. That's but I mean,
0: we're still trying to find the source of the data is the hard part. I mean, we're mm. talking about going, you know, if we know we're going to procure this steel from this place or this concrete, with this mix, we'll go to the source and get our own emissions factor that's specific. Uh, but right now, if we want to, you know, provide a client with a embodied carbon number, we would be using one of those data sets mm. to give us the emissions factors quickly. So which one's better? How do we partner with them? Can we talk to more than one? How do we access their data? All these different nuances. And we're working through that right now, honestly. And running into roadblocks about how far they'll let us look into the spreadsheets.
1: Oh, that's complicated. I yeah. want to talk about wood buildings. Are, are you okay with that? I'm ready to talk about wood buildings. <laughs> <Russ>. <laughs> I've long been interested in this and think it's so beautiful. Every building I've been in, there's a couple pretty pretty large buildings in Seattle that yeah. are, are wood. And I've been in a few of them and they are quite lovely. Where's that going? What are the problems? Is, Skanska, are you guys trying to do that? Do you build wood buildings now?
0: We have a little bit. Our... Portfolio is larger buildings typically, but we have a development arm where we commercially develop our own work. We self-fund, self-develop, self-build. And those projects is where we've actually looked at the costs associated and kind of the comparison of costs and emissions and everything. On buildings up to 10 stories.
1: How does it stack up?
0: It's still more costly. And you know, this is just like anything that's new. Costs go down as efficiencies and availability grows. So as more folks come online that are providing things like CLT, mass timber.
1: What is the CLT? It's cross-laminated, cross-laminated timber. timber. Yep. I think if you heard that and you never heard of that, that wouldn't help you know what that yeah, is. Yeah. So if
0: you think about forests that can be produced quickly, they're smaller profile trees, right? So they're not going to give you huge beams. So how do you make a strong wood component out of small trees. So they take those trees and put them into two by fours or two by sixes and they cross them over each other back and forth to create Mm -hmm. these cross laminated panels that are very structural.
1: They like weave parts of trees and then they put plastic over. Is that the lamination is?
0: It's not plastic, it's like a glue.
1: A glue. Yeah, that binds
0: it together and they press it
1: Okay, and you're saying right now it just isn't cost effective. Are you taking into account the embodied carbon in that calculation?
0: Yeah, that is. It's really complicated. There's debates going on right now about that too. Um, is it
1: because there's no price on carbon? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that could be part of it. Uh, but even just because like, when you think about embodied carbon, you're going all the way back to the source, right? So that in that case, it's all the way back to where the trees are being harvested from, and how you're harvesting the trees, and you know what that's doing to emissions which is a huge complicated thing that hasn't been very well understood yet. Like if you go to a forest and you clear cut it and you build cross-layered timber out of it, then what's happening at that source location in terms of all sorts of things, emissions included, but runoff and forest health okay. and all that.
1: That sounds probably worse than just using steel or something, potentially, but maybe it's not.
0: Depending. Yeah. I mean, there's advocacy around just, you know, there's folks in Washington that go into forest thinning for forest fires and that's where they're sourcing this wood. So it's something they're doing anyway.
1: That's good. Um,
0: to help with, Fire prevention, which is of course emissions related, how do you quantify that into an actual emissions number for CLT? So there's all these kind of nuances of it. But if you can source the wood from a responsible source, then it's a very good thing. But as the industry grows, how do you ensure that's what's happening?
1: There's a bunch of projects that are blockchain related that focus on provenance and supply chain transparency. So we'll see if some of those pan out. I'm sure there are non-blockchain projects that are trying for provenance. Is that so? I don't know anything about those though.
0: I don't really either
1: to be honest. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> people are working on it and everyone wants this thing to exist. So someone's yeah. going to make a lot of money figuring it out. Uh-huh. I just haven't picked a horse in that race.
0: <laughs> Maybe you should. It, it's, Maybe it's not you even should. about yeah. the
1: money. It's about, <laughs> it's about where do you draw the
2: boundary so that you can be honest in your life cycle. Yeah. Because if bad things are happening in my forest, but I'm like, oh, getting my wood sustainably harvested and I paid some guy over here, nice bribe to say that my wood is sustainably harvested, but that's not the case. It's kind of like garbage in, garbage out. You have bad data that will completely destroy your data set. I mean,
0: that's really the underlying issue or opportunity around all of this, right? It's just transparency Mm -hmm. and, and honesty all the way back to the source of whatever it is you're tracking. And that's what we're trying to get to when it comes to those core materials right now we
2: could figure this out on the podcast in like 2 minutes. I'll tell you how it'll work. You'll have satellite imagery which can tell you exactly what trees are where and you can correlate that to when you cut those trees down and then you have some on the ground data and it tracks in some large supply chain and it's all interoperable with data that might relate to getting paid for storing carbon in that wood at well, which nobody cares about, but like we're yep. all in this together. And like yep. let's figure it out because there's a limited amount of carbon budget left until we're really In deep water. We try not to focus on the doom and gloom. But I I agree with Ross. I think having the provenance right, or at least good enough, Mm -hmm. and in a way where the data can grow with and get better as you just put it out there. And I think that really embodies what it is that we're all about
0: no so, pun intended bodies
2: uh, th- there was a pun intended at all. <laughs> okay <laughs> you, you intended that i
0: intended that pun
2: <laughs> yeah i don't want to buy it but okay <laughs> so okay cross-laminated timber it's sexy it's cool it's a trend what else what are the other opportunities that are when we look ahead to like sustainable construction what does that mean
0: carbon sequestering concrete where you're actually taking materials and you're embodying the emissions in them
1: mm-hmm. how does that work i heard there's some curing process or something like that
0: yeah it's in the aggregate mm-hmm. so it's basically you're replacing the cement that has a high emissions factor with something else that's actually containing carbon emissions basically embodying them in the aggregate material
2: it makes sense. Uh, it makes sense. And I love it. But I also want to like jump up and down and say, don't forget that you're still getting the lime from the limestone, which yep. is responsible for 50% of the emissions. So when they say this is carbon negative concrete, I call BS.
0: I'd say it's carbon negative aggregate.
2: That's fair. That's accurate. And yes. then how that fits in all is really exciting. And look, you're getting something that uses less input. And it's more durable and it's cheaper. And you don't even need an incentive to get this going. And we're seeing companies like Carbon Cure and others really just making a lot of progress. They are, yeah. Um, And
0: there's legislation, too, that's kind of helping this, which we haven't talked about at all in terms of kind of where things are going. You mentioned that maybe we'll be forced to do this someday in the construction industry. And in California, we are for certain materials. We actually have to have a certain emissions factor and, and be tracking things from certain sources. And then Washington tried to pass the same thing this year. Didn't pass, but they've got funding to help understand how they should pass it next year in terms of setting factors and things. So around those types of things where we're going to have a global warming potential, you know, emissions factor associated with concrete, we have to meet those types of things like carbon cure and other opportunities to reduce are going to be more important.
2: Great. I agree. And I think it's exciting. And that probably is just one other large piece of data that fits into this large open source project you guys are working on. That's really exciting. Yeah. What are some of the other things that the construction industry can look to?
0: Well, there's all sorts of things. We talk about two um, categories, I guess. We're talking a lot about there's inside the fence and outside the fence. So inside the fence is stuff that we own or are doing on site when it comes to our vehicles and our equipment and how we're building stuff and utilizing job trailers and energy and all sorts of things. That's our scope one and two really emissions.
1: It's all Teslas, right?
0: Oh, I wish. That would be fantastic. Skanska, are you listening? Um, (laughs) uh, And then scope scope three is the embodied carbon that we're talking about. So that's actually something we don't necessarily control 100%, right? We're just providing information and kind of pushing folks to think about it and care and invest in reductions.
1: Yeah, you're a big company. I'm sure you have influence with the people you uh, procure from. We do. Right? Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about Skanska is it's not, again, where I think where I made the shift where, you know, I'm an architect working on one project. Hi, I'm Stacy from Blabity blah, blah Architecture Firm. I want you to change your concrete mix. Or it's, hey, I'm Skanska. We have 36 offices and we X, you know, thousand cubic yards of concrete per blah, blah blah from you and we want you to change your mix people Absolutely.
1: return your phone calls yeah. yeah throw your weight around a little yeah. bit
0: yeah it's good i mean i think being smart and leveraging that is another thing that i'm i'm proud skanska is willing to do
1: oh you want to think of sweden i think of bullies is what i think oh yeah of. <laughs> big
0: tall blonde yeah. good-looking bullies the
1: bad guys in, in teenage ski movies
0: <laughs>
1: <That's> like <laughs> ikea products that i can't pronounce <laughs> yeah, i like the the stomp. <laughs> it's a great product
0: you always know when like leaderships from sweden is in the office because it's this group of incredibly attractive tall blonde people that are walking in a little cluster around the <laughs> office mm, very nice <laughs> but anyway so the inside the fence scope one and two stuff is stuff that we can just do we don't have to you know have our clients tell us that it's okay and they're going to pay a little more for something or we can look at it. So that's craftwork of Transit and vehicles that we're having on site that can be electric versus, you know, gas driven and things like that. So we're working on that too. And that's easy for us to just take care of.
1: When I'm ready to build a house, are you going to design it for me?
0: Yeah, I do like this. I will say I miss design mm-hmm. a little bit. And so, yes, if there's opportunities for me to, to do a little side projects and create a zero carbon home for you, I would do that.
1: Yeah, I've seen the passive houses. That's what they're called, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, those things are are quite cool. And I think uh, especially in Seattle where like seasonal affective disorder is so bad, I think being able to design an appropriate home might be might be quite good.
0: Yeah. Living buildings are also awesome. Yeah. There's I don't little understand little the difference.
1: Coffee, I know there's yes. so many different standards yeah. and I don't understand the difference between all of them.
0: Yeah. Living buildings are my, my favorite.
1: What's so great about that?
0: <laughs> I could do a whole hour on this. I will try to be succinct in my living building okay. love, but so it's a certification system that's really holistic mm-hmm. and it goes kind of beyond just reductions into net positive. So you have to be net positive on energy and water, which means that you're producing more energy on site than you're using. And you're treating all of the water on your site without any <clears throat> connection to a pipe. So, you know, toilet water, gray water, anything that you're using for potable water has to be something that you're collecting on site. It's based on the metaphor of a flower. So however a flower would act in nature is how a building should, it should be made of natural stuff. It should be beautiful. But yeah, it's really pushing you to be net positive, which is, I think, emissions is part of that, right? but it's holistic about that.
1: It's called net metering when you can sell the electricity back mm-hmm. to the grid. Does that exist here?
0: Yes, that's how it works here, yeah.
1: Oh, okay. I mean, I would love that. I think it appeals to me almost more for the efficiency sake. I like the idea of producing stuff just without even much effort at all. Mm-hmm. I'm sure plenty of people would like the cost savings of that too, but I assume you have to amortize the cost of this over a longer period of time versus a conventional building, or is it becoming cost competitive?
0: So well, it was becoming cost competitive until there were tariffs on solar panels that came up
1: we hate tariffs yes but
2: we love oh. built in america <laughs> so we love
0: america Build here but um don't squash kind of innovation at the same time anyways that's a whole other thing right but uh, if you want to complain
1: about tariffs well we will let you <laughs>
0: <laughs> well steel is a problem too although it's good because it's making us procure it here instead of from far away but for
1: your transparency purposes for the transparency
0: purposes oh, right. but from a cost perspective on projects right now that need it it can't just be an immediate thing where you say, hey, tomorrow it's going to be more expensive. Let's just see how it happens. It should be something that's kind of planned, right?
1: But the solar panel tariff is just pure bad.
0: Well, In my opinion, I mean, it's doubling the cost of the payback. So we were getting to the point where here they're on a project that my solar, you know, it's a 10-year payback on the system based on incentives and the cost of the panels. Now it's back up to 20 years again, based on what's happening with the tariffs.
1: That's a long time, especially the life of a mortgage is what, like 30, 30 years, years typically. So that's a pretty pretty big increase for life of your home. What were we gonna say, Christoph? You got to jump in there? Oh, I was just gonna ask a kind of geeky energy question.
2: Mm-hmm. So living buildings, you're sort of net positive, producing more energy than you consume. And I imagine you're doing that mostly with solar on your rooftops or around the building, wherever. But it's only really going to produce energy about eight hours of the day. So is the rest of the time, are you just in those eight hours producing more energy as a net that building consumes and then still getting energy from the grid? Or, okay, you're nodding. So that's that's what I thought. (laughs) But is the kind of the long term vision of living buildings to have these kind of completely resilient off grid buildings, which truly are sort of powerhouses, maybe they've got some power walls or fuel cells and electrolyzers to
1: make carbon neutral fuels. It's like, did you play SimCity and they had the arcologies where they had like those like towers that were totally, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. There's like the arcology, right?
0: Kind of. Yeah. I mean, so right now they've gotten to the point now where it's net metering where you're giving back and taking, you know, you're taking it when you need it. You're giving back when you're not using it in terms of energy, but they do require battery storage for certain things right now. So they're kind of ramping up that in the standard, you know, here, if you're talking about net metering, we have such a clean energy grid right now. It's
1: all hydroelectric, right?
0: Yeah. In terms of emissions that the net metering kind of makes sense. But as, as energy changes, there's much more kind of district, you know, personal scale that we're going to be looking at Hmm. in terms of storage. Hmm. Yeah. Battery technology is getting way better too.
1: Yeah. I'm looking forward to those advances. I think every time I check it's some sort of major milestone is passed for that.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good lesson. So that's where I talk about, you know, operational versus embodied where if you think about where we were operationally 10 to 30 years ago, just take the scale all the way back. We've innovated so much now in terms of how efficient we can be and how we can actually get that close to net zero net positive. We can talk that language without being like, you're crazy. You're never going to get to net positive energy on a building. Now it's happening, right? And we're like at that zero to five year mark on the embodied side. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm really excited about is I think it's an imperative. We're not going to get to zero emissions unless we we take care of that too. So let's innovate on that side now.
1: I have a question. And because I'm asking this question, I know the podcast is almost over because it's increasingly. Oh, boy. You got something, Kristoff? No, I. I want to talk about Nori, so I don't want to end this podcast just yet. But I <laughs> should ask, talk, ask your question. We should talk about Nori. Oh, man. I'm going to have to cut this. What's with those buildings in Seattle that are like those three story, like square ones that are all like metal and hard lines and they exist everywhere?
0: Like, I need an example of what you're talking about. Please. Are you talking about
1: the townhomes that are everywhere? Yeah. Oh. Why are they everywhere in Seattle? Why is that the choice we've made?
0: We've got like five podcasts right now that we could. Branch Mm -hmm. out on. This is density related and just just zoning changes where they're taking single family areas and making the ability to make them denser, Mm -hmm. which is going to this kind of low rise townhome
1: approach. Like building up a little more, not craftsmen.
0: Yeah, you know, four homes on a site versus one. So really densifying the city. And the developers see an opportunity there to buy a single family lot and kind of quadruple their money. And that look that you're talking about is a very cost-effective way to do that if i'm being politically correct here (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) sleek modern clean lines
0: clean boxes with you know
1: my wife hates them she's like i want a craftsman i just want like a totally redone craftsman on the inside that's like our aesthetic that we we have one that went
0: up there's also the problem of people coming in and demolishing that craftsman that could be renovated and just building one big box on a Single-family site, which happened two doors down. My, my husband calls it the Great White because it's this wall of white that we look up at every morning. Oh no! But I call it boxitecture. So it's not architecture; it's boxitecture. It's mm. happening a lot.
1: Throw mm. some architectural shade there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a
2: local problem. I'd like to to take a step back to a global problem: global climate change. You're on the Reversing Climate Change podcast. Yes. As you know, it's a function of there being too many greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. We crunched some numbers the other day, and we thought, all right, we want to get down to around 300 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which requires removing 1.5 trillion tons. And Nori... There's no way we're going to even get close to removing all of that, but we're creating a new market mechanism, a financial instrument where if someone wants to pay to take that carbon back out of the atmosphere, they can do so in a way which is better than all the traditional offset markets and also only paying for negating that emission. So if you've put up a metric ton of carbon dioxide, you can buy a carbon removal certificate and that equates to removing one metric ton of carbon dioxide. And just to pick up on something that you said earlier is we at Skanska are focused to get to zero by 2050, zero emissions. And in order to do that, we are going to reduce everything that we can and offset, even though we try to stay away from the word offset, yeah. we realize ultimately we can't, like that's what we're doing, yeah. but we're not calling our instrument an offset, maybe negate, maybe reverse, but whatever, balance out your emissions with the rest. So here comes Nori, we're a new company, we're trying to just build this in a trustless way that can scale much more quickly. Well, first of all, how would that work theoretically to help Skanska meet its goals?
0: So there's two parts of that. There's our internal goals where we're looking at our scope one and two emissions and how we can get to zero, right? And we're not going to get to zero by just reducing, there's just no way. Construction has emissions associated with it. So yes, as a company that's committed to responsibly getting to the target we set, Doing that in a way where it's actually—I'm trying to think of a cool word for you to use—negating the carbon.
1: We've been debating this actually.
0: Yeah, there's got to be a cool word for this. It's not sequestering it. It's basically—it's not removing it. You're negating. I guess you're kind of negating it. Some people
1: said reversing, but Christoph kind of hated that one.
0: I mean, there's so many like second level there, right? Carbon's there, but what do you do? (laughs) Obviate. Anyways, doing that versus you know kind of what's out there right now. Which is helping, you know, build a wind farm or there's all these things that we can do that's offsetting really mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, where energy's coming from or whatnot. I think it's a more transparent and directional way to do it. So that's exciting, I think, as an option. And then for clients too, where we're telling them, you know, hey, you know, client X, your construction's gonna produce eight hundred thousand tons of emissions. What are you gonna do? We're gonna reduce that as much as we can, but what about the five hundred thousand tons that are left? Let's find a way to make what you're doing there. A story to tell right instead of just hey we bought an offset over there and you know it's certified and i have no idea what it's doing so there's something exciting about what you guys are doing around that that i think we'll want to know more about and stay on top of as you continue to build it i'm excited about tomorrow honestly
2: yeah, we are too. I think it's cool because this podcast is actually going out after the event. Oh. So it's like our listeners will be like, oh my God, what happened at reverse Palooza? And they'll just have to wait for future podcasts.
0: Well, there you go.
1: Yeah, we're all very excited. And all the videos. We're going to be recording all the panel discussions and talks and putting those up online afterwards. So
0: Yeah, you have a great group of attendees. I looked at the list. Yeah, in terms of who you're bringing in perspectives. So,
1: although I walked into uh, the bathroom and saw Christoph crying in a little little ball this morning, are you nervous?
2: I'm <laughs> <laughs> <A> very, very. <laughs> I'm staring at the Marriott. You know, brought my bathing suit, going on like a three day vacation. I'm not even going to show up to the conference.
0: It's <laughs> gonna wave. in across the street. Can you just wave from the pool or something? Yeah. Like, hey so. <laughs> guys.
2: Okay. On that note. This has been wonderful. Thanks so much, Stacey. We're really looking forward to hanging out the next two days. And this has been incredibly insightful. So thank you.
0: Of course. Thanks.
1: Yeah, thank you.